Uh, it's good to see all of you. Uh, there was a time uh, when Big Carrie and I were dating. I was driving home from her house, and she lived about 25 minutes from my house, except for when it was real late at night, and there was no one on the freeways. She lived about 10 minutes from my house. See, I had a car uh, that was real fast and had a lot of horses, and those horses liked to run. And so I would get in the car, and I would see how fast I could make it home, and it was wonderful. Uh, sometimes the windows were down, the music was blasting, and the heater was on, because that's always fun, right? And then one time, I was coming around the corner where the, the 91 freeway hits the 55 freeway, if you are familiar with California, and I turned the corner, and I'm, I'm going a considerable rate of speed. And uh, it car's doing well, turn the corner, and then all of a sudden lights everywhere on my dashboard. I had no idea what was happening. RPMs tanked. And I'm like, I'm freaking out, because I'm, I'm in the far lane, and I'm where, where you're supposed to go fast, right? And, and, I, and I, I don't know what's happening. I barely get over to the side of the freeway, and I'm like, this was working perfectly until it wasn't. What's happening? And I pull over to the side of the shoulder, barely get there, and, and I sit there, and I'm like, I don't know what's going on. I turn the key again, and it's trying to start, but it's not starting. It's not a battery, because it wasn't clicking. I know that much. And then I, I, I walked around, and I noticed that there was no smell of smoke. So it's like, okay, I didn't blow something. Wonderful. There was no hissing. There was nothing. I just lost it all. So I was about two miles from my dad, and I knew I looked at the clock, and I, I know my dad's sleep schedule. He would sleep from like 8 to 10 on the couch. And then he would go to bed for like an hour, and then he'd be up from about midnight to 3, reading his Bible, and then he'd go back to bed. It was around 12.30. I knew my dad was awake. And so I called him. Dad, I'm in trouble. All right, where are you? I said, I'm on the 91 freeway right at Lakeview, and I need help. And so he comes down there, and, and he could tell that he, he was sleeping. And he comes down, and he, and he looks at me, and he goes, I have no idea what's going on. And so in the meantime, I had, we had AAA, and I called the tow truck, because what am I going to do? At least he could tow it to my house, and we could figure it out tomorrow. And then the tow truck driver starts asking me all these questions. What, what, did, what happened? When the, how fast were you going? And, uh, about 110. And, and, then, and then, okay, this happened, that happened. And then he walks, he goes, I know what it is. Okay. And he walks back and gets this gas can out of the car, out of his truck, about two gallons, sticks it in the side of the car, dumps about two gallons in, and then, uh, and then gets in the car, pumps the gas pedal a couple times, lets it sit, fires it right up, takes the gas can out, puts it in his truck, says, have a good day. And my dad just stared at me. And it was this look of, you have never, you are never, ever going to let this down. My mic. Okay, so the gas, the, the dad looks at me with this look of, you will never live this down. And I didn't. Every time I'd get in the car, he'd go, you got enough gas? Yes, yes, dad. The thing was, dad would run out of gas all the time, and he would never tell anybody. He racked up all those AAA points and was able to get free gas coming to him, and so, but he would run out of gas. And so, but there's nothing more humiliating, I don't know if you've ever done it, I don't want you all to raise your hand, than running out of gas, right? everyone looks at you when you're on the side of the road like, what'd that guy do? Rubbernecking their way into your life of, oh, you're a failure, you ran out of gas, and then the, the walk back, and it's happened a couple times, okay, I run out of gas, and it's, I keep a gas can in the back of my car for this reason. 
you walk back from the gas station holding the bright red thing. It tells everybody, look at what a failure I am, right? If you haven't done it, it's going to come your way. You're going to run out of gas. It happens. And then the questions come. Well, can't you tell what, what, how much gas you have in your tank? Yes, I can. Except for in this car, it turned out that a couple weeks later, they recalled the gas gauge. So I felt vindicated. But my current car has the same gas gauge problem, and it hasn't been recalled yet, so it might just be me. But, and it's happened twice in that car. So running out of gas is a thing. Uh, but there are moments in your life, and if you haven't had them yet, you will, where you are stuck on the side of the road, and you're embarrassed, and you're ashamed, and you're exhausted. And for me, at that moment, I couldn't believe I was there. Uh, it could be the side of the road. It might be the time when you're walking out of your office and you have a box with all of your office supplies and you never saw the layoff coming. Or, or the time uh, where, where you had this relationship and the phone call happens and the phone call told you that this relationship wasn't going to happen anymore and it took the wind out of your sails and you're embarrassed. Or that retirement account that you've been counting on isn't producing the numbers that you wanted it to produce. And so you're not going to be able to meet your goals and it's embarrassing. The celebration that you had planned had turned into mourning and now you're full of regret. And you're stuck on the side of the road of your life wondering, how did this happen? You ran out of gas. Something happened in your life. How many times have you ended up like this? Those oh no moments in your life. What am I going to do now moments in your life? How did I get to this place in my life? How do you have rest in the middle of those moments? Not just rest like you're going to take a nap because sometimes when, get, when I get stressed at least, the first thing I want to do is take a nap. But how do we have peace in the middle of those moments? When everything is going crazy in your life, how do you find peace and rest, and how do you secure your faith at a ground level with Christ? For the last few weeks, we've been in uh, uh, Peter's letter to these five churches in modern-day Turkey, and he's been instructing them on, hey, you're going to have troubles in your life. This is how you stand firm with them. This is how you build your foundation. This is how you don't give in to sin. And Peter answers these questions of what does it look like to have rest in the middle of these situations. Now, we don't live in a perfect world, and I know that we're going to experience difficulty, and I know from my experience that those moments are always made aware when your life starts churning out of control. And when those times happen, the first thought that comes into at least mine is, is God really good in this? How can God make this or allow this to happen to me? When those moments hit, and if you're like me, uh, I almost expect those sleepless nights to return. I don't expect to get much sleep. I expect to roll back and forth in bed as I'm trying to solve all of my problems and then trying to figure out what not only I'm going to do, but what is everyone else going to do? Because if I roll back and forth enough, maybe you're like this, the solution rattles in your brain, right? I don't know how many of the world's problems I have solved by staring at the dark ceiling in my room, but when I'm up at night worrying about them, I've solved them all. And then I go to sleep and forget about it. We have those moments. And instead of solving those problems, what usually ends up happening is the next day I'm zapped of my energy. I'm short with Carrie. I'm short with the kids. 
I'm exhausted, most likely sick to my stomach because I've been up all night worrying about stuff. I'm short-tempered, and I'm extremely on edge. I doubt in those times God's provision, his care. I forget the community that surrounds me, and I begin to think that I'm all alone. Are you with me? Do we do this? Perhaps you're like me, perhaps you're not. Suffering and trials do that to us no matter who we are. And Peter looks at this group of Christians who are new to the faith, and he's just written this letter on how they're going to have difficulty. He's instructed them, and then at the end of this letter, he gives some directives on how they can have peace in the middle of these storms. How do we experience peace in the middle of chaos? Peter gives us three directives that will enable us to find peace and embody hope in the middle of these trials, and each of these has a common theme around humility, which makes zero sense uh, until it makes all the sense in the world, right? How does humility affect how we're going to go through trials? Our ability to know and experience rest amid the darkest times is solely based on our ability to remain humble. And so the first directive that Peter gives, and if you have your Bibles, open your Bible up to 1 Peter chapter 5. It'll be on the screen, but it's more fun to look at it in the text. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, the first thing that he says is check yourself. And if you want to add before you wreck yourself, because that's the song, right? He says check yourself. And he says to check three places in our lives. The first place, check your pride. Know your place. Uh, it begins in the end of, uh, of, cha- of verse 5 in chapter 5. He says, All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. And that's a quote from Proverbs. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he might lift you up in due time. And if you've been following along in First Peter, the first part of chapter 5 is a letter to church leaders. Hey, this is how, uh, how you're supposed to lead churches. You're supposed to be humble. He calls them shepherds. This is how, what a good shepherd does. And he's pointing back to Psalm 23. He's pointing back to the, a chapter in Ezekiel where it talks about the priest. This is what good shepherds do. And then Peter changes gears, so to speak, and gets to the end of verse 5, and he begins to, to talk to everybody. This is how we're all supposed to, to be living our lives in the midst of trials. And the first thing he says is clothe yourself in humility. The word clothe in Greek is, this is a long one, enkambumahe. Come on, you want to say it? Enkambumahe. All right. This side was quiet. We'll give him a minute. Enkambumahe. There we go. Enkambumahe. It's a lot of fun. It means to bind to oneself. Uh, it, it means to wear this constantly. Peter's borrowing a word, and this word is used once for sure in the text, and Paul alludes to it in one of his other letters, but it says to clothe yourself with humility. Wear it. In my house, it's my, son's, it's my son Caleb's white T-shirt that he stole from his brother about soccer camp. Caleb wears this shirt nonstop unless we can sneak it off of him and wash it. This is Caleb's shirt. He is clothed constantly in this shirt. Uh, it, it, it begins to define him, and, and if we don't get to it long enough, it'll walk away on its own. This is how dirty that shirt gets, but it defines Caleb. Peter is borrowing something from the culture. 
Back then, if you, uh, if you were a slave or you were a servant, you would wear a scarf or a sash that identified you. This person is that. It, it ranked your position. If you were a noble person, you would wear a different color uh, sash. If you were a senator, you had a different color uh, robe, and those marked people out in society. So I'd be able to look at you and go, you are this person. We have the same thing. How many of you ever mistakenly worn khakis and a red shirt to Target? Immediately, you work there. Or a Hawaiian shirt at Trader Joe's. Yes, we have these things. If you wear an orange apron to Home Depot, yep, I've actually worn an orange apron at Home Depot because I worked there. And there is a policy. We don't know where anything is. <laughs> if you say, uh, my pleasure, where do you work? The, the Lord's chicken. That's right. There are these things that mark us in our lives. There are these things that mark people in our culture. And the first thing Peter says is you, as believers in Christ, be marked out by humility. Be, make that something that identifies you. Be known for being humble. But there's this problem that we have in our culture. We don't really know what humility is. We understand it. We get this concept. But we think that uh, humility, we confuse it with putting ourselves down. And kind of downplaying our, our own lives, uh, selling ourselves short, or we lack backbone and let people run all over us, or we, we don't take care of ourselves because we're being humble and we allow people to mistreat us. That's not humility. That's not what humility is. True humility isn't thinking lowly of yourself. True humility is thinking accurately of yourself. Who are you, and not who you think you are, or not who other people think you are, but who are you actually? In Philippians 2, Paul writes this letter, and he says, consider others better than yourself. And he uses this word to, uh, for consider, that means to calculate uh, based on carefully weighed facts, to consider others better to yourself, better than yourself, is simply saying, know your place. You are good at some things, and it's okay to say that you know, I'm pretty good at this and I'm pretty good at that. That's okay. That's not arrogant. That's being honest. Uh, and that's, that's not a lack of humility when you say that. True humility being a proper view of yourself, you know what you're good at, but you also know what you're not good at. You know your limitations. You're aware of your vulnerabilities. You're aware of your strengths. And you're aware of your weakness. Jesus did this. Of course, Jesus is always the example, right? He was content to be known as a carpenter. And then later, after he rose from the, from the dead, he was, he was okay being misidentified as a gardener. Did this take away what Jesus, who Jesus thought he was? Not at all. Uh, he, he happily mistaken for all of these. He even washed people's feet. However, he was fully aware of his strengths, fully aware of his weaknesses, and his identity as God. Humility is understanding your limits, and knowing your strengths. And sometimes humility is understanding that you and I all have limits. Because one of the first things that happens when we're going through a trial or, or suffering or when you run out of gas on the side of the freeway is pretending that you have it all figured out. When you pretend you have all figured out, you're not being honest with you because when you're honest with yourself, you realize that you don't have anything figured out. I remember thinking that my parents had everything nailed and dialed until I became a parent and realized they were just making it up as they went, just like I am. 
You don't have everything figured out, and that's okay. When we think we have everything figured out, when we go through a, 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 a difficult season, the first thing we usually say is, why is this happening to me? Why, what did I do to deserve this? And it's this, this code for, I am beyond suffering. I am beyond this type of trial. I'm too good for this. We might say these things out loud. Most likely you say them internally, but we think them. I know I do. We all have them. All this to say the first key to finding rest that Peter gives us is understanding that you're not above trials. You're not above suffering. You're going to go through difficulty. And guess what? You're normal for it. There is nothing to be ashamed of because of life happened to you. We're all going to, at some point in our lives, going to go through it. The temptation is to hide it because we don't want people to know what we're experiencing. We don't want to ask for help. We don't want to appear like we're weak. We're ashamed of what we're experiencing. But if you back up into 1 Peter uh, chapter 4.16, he says, However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. If you're going through something, don't be ashamed of it. There's nothing shameful about it. It's okay. The humility that Peter's talking about is, tells us to embody uh, an understanding of this. A proper view of yourself will show you that you're going to struggle sometimes leading to the following directive that humility brings, is a proper view of yourself exposes that you can't handle things on your own. So once you check your pride, you realize that you're not meant to carry these things, and now you check your cares. Peter says this in verse 7, cast all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. What are the things in your life that cause you to worry? We worry about the things that we care about, right? If it's not yours, what do you say? I, I, I couldn't care less, right? But when you possess care for something or somebody, you begin to worry about that something or somebody. And what Peter says is take all of these cares that you have and not just cast them. The word for cast is to throw, to chuck, to hurl whatever is bothering you onto the Lord. One of the most intriguing aspects of knowing God is this invitation is seen all through Scripture. It's seen in Joshua 1 where, where, where God says, don't, don't be afraid. Don't worry. I'm with you. I got this. He says it to David. He says it to Elijah. He says it to everyone in Scripture. Cast your cares upon me. Nothing is more gracious than that invitation to cast what we care about onto him, to throw it to his feet, knowing that what's filling your mind won't fill his hands. What's troubling you won't trouble him, and those worries that you have can be taken care of. In this last week at the gym, uh, where, where I tend to lift heavy things every morning, uh, they, it was one rep max week, which means that we're foolish, and we stack a whole bunch of weights on the bar, and for the first 30 minutes, we try and see how much we can lift. And then the first, but as we're warming up, there's always a review from the coach who says, this is how you fail. Okay. And so they, she gives us, in this case, her name's Molly and she's giving us. So when you get to the bottom of your squat and you can't get back up, here's what you do. You bail out. Don't try and do it. If you can't do it, let it go. But there's a qualifier here. When, when Peter says the same thing, you can't lift this weight, throw it away. 
Give it to someone who's stronger than you. But why should we throw it to God? Why do we need to cast this onto God? And the qualifier is this. Cast all your cares because he cares for you. And by caring for you, he cares about what you care about. In other words, we worry about everything else that we care, care about so much. In the same way we worry, God doesn't necessarily worry, but he wants the best for us. Do you believe this? That God cares for you? All of your concerns, all of your responsibility, what's happening to you at work, what's happening to you in your marriage, what's happening to you in your friendships, what's happening to you in your failures, your relationships, your situations, your temptations, or even your weaknesses. God says, give it to him. Why? Because he cares for you. One of the deep, dark secrets that we all possess as believers is uh, that we, we carry this large weight of anxiety and fear. And the effect that this anxiety and fear has on us is that it paralyzes us. It robs you of joy, it zaps you of energy and courage, and it destroys your rest. It prevents you from becoming who Christ wanted you to be. And we spend all of our energy instead on what Jesus wants us to focus on. We spend all of our energy and time worrying about what concerns us most. And we miss the needs around us. How many of you have walked into your office or your home and people are around you, but you're so focused in on what's bothering you that you've missed them? I've done this. I've walked out to our kitchen, zapped by everything that's on my mind, and Judah and Caleb are saying, hi, Daddy, hi, Daddy, hi, Daddy, and I'm like, don't even see them. And finally, Carrie goes, Brad. And I wake up and hear these two boys saying, hey, for the last three minutes. We miss it because we're so focused on everything else that we miss what's right in front of us. And what Peter's saying is those things, they zap you of everything in your life and you miss what God is doing. There's a dramatic connection between living the life that God has for us and trust. Because when we trust, we cast what we're concerned about to God and then we have the energy and capability to open our eyes up to the rest of the world around us. If we are ever going to make a lasting impact on the city we live in, the homes we stay in, or the offices where we work, then we have to be people who have placed the care, our cares in the hands of God. And as a result, we can give our lives to something other than just our problems. Only then will we begin to see the needs that surround us. And the key to having this ability is humility. Humility enables us to give our anxiety to God because he cares for us, but it also is us realizing that only God has the ability to carry them, which means that we can't. And so you've come to grips with how strong you actually aren't, and you've bailed out from the weight that's on your shoulders, and you've given it to somebody who can actually carry it. Last Saturday, I got back from Costco, and I had all the meat for last Saturday's barbecue, and I was getting it ready to cook, and, and I had like 40 pounds of pork, and, and, and Judah comes running out, and he says, Dad, I want to help. Judah's all about helping, and, and he has a great time, and sometimes it's a help, and sometimes it's a hindrance, but I go, okay, sure, bud, what do you want? He's all, I'll carry that, and he points to 25 pounds of meat and says, I'll carry that in the house, and I go, okay, 
Now, Judah weighs all 50 pounds. You tell me he's going to carry half his body weight upstairs? No. But he held it. I gave it to him, and he held it in his arms, and then holding something of, of substantial weight and walking with something while holding it is uh, two different things. And so I, I say, okay, here you go, bud. He goes, I got this, Dad. No, I'm sure you do. So I stood at the end of the car and just, just watched him because sometimes he shocks me. And he, he takes four or five steps and he begins to get this panic look like, oh, I don't have this. And he's like, Dad, Dad, I can't do this. I need help. And so I walked over to him and I, I reached down and I, I grabbed the, the meat out of his hand. And I said, okay, but why don't you take the hot, the, the, the buns in? He goes, yeah, this, this is more better. And then he walked up and we got to the kitchen and I put the meat on, on, the, on the stove. He put the buns on the floor and then dramatically, if you know my son Judah, everything is dramatic, fell onto the ground and said, I'm exhausted. <laughs> Judah learned a valuable lesson and I think we can all learn it too. The mantra of our day is this, you got this. Yeah, you got this, you can take this. Uh, I, Carrie says it to me, I say it to her, uh, I say it to my boys, you got this, you're strong, you're capable, you're willing, you can do it. It's the new pull yourself together statement, right? You got this. And Peter says, no you don't. That's okay. It's okay to say, I, I, I don't have it. And the sooner you come to that realization, the better. I don't have this. There's so much going on in my life that I don't have this. I need help. Peter says, take all of that and cast it onto the Lord. He cares about your problems. Nothing is more humbling than coming to the conclusion of what you can't do. However, nothing is more freeing when you realize there's someone who can. I'm learning this every day. I realize the there's, there's pressures around me as a, as a leader of this church that I can't handle all the things that come my way. And for two years it was, got this, we can muscle through this pandemic, we can muscle through the aftermath. But lately it's been like, no, this is tough. And I'm not saying this for you to be sympathetic. No, 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 this is just me realizing this. And hopefully you can realize it too. There's things that I thought I would have that I absolutely do not. It, it's, and when we realize that, you know what? Who cares about this church more than I do? God. I can't sit here and take care of everything. I can't meet all y'all's needs. I can try. I'll be exhausted, but I can't. Who cares about this place more? God does. So rather than me worrying myself in my office trying to figure out the latest, greatest sermon because they're not that great or something, I need to say, you know what, God? You have this. I'll put this on you. You're stronger than me. I can't carry this 25 pounds of pork anymore. I can't lift that weight. I need to bail out and throw it off. Humility is a hard thing to learn, and I'm having to learn it here. Humility is realizing that I have limits. Humility is realizing that you have limits, but God doesn't. In the midst of when you understand your weaknesses in light of God's strength, you find peace and rest. Some of us need to realize uh, and throw our cares onto a God and then watch how much He cares for you in return. How many times has worrying all night actually solved the problem? Never. Feels like it does because you actually feel like you're doing something. You're not. 
But when you hand it off to someone who's stronger and more capable than you, then it starts to fix itself, or God starts to fix it. Finding rest in hardships, meaning you check yourself before you wreck yourself, you check your cares, and then finally, the last uh, directive that Peter gives is check your blind side. In verse 8, he says, Be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith because you know the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. Be of sober mind means be careful about the way that you think. It's about thinking about life with wisdom and with the wisdom of Scripture as your vantage point so that your belief system is not out here someplace. Instead, your belief system acts as a lens and gives you a careful, accurate, sober, and serious approach to how you live. One of the biggest problems we face in our culture is that we have this addiction to pleasure, this addiction to fun, this addiction to to short-term results. And and one author says that we live in a silly society that doesn't take life seriously. And the more you look around with it, it's like, yeah, we, we really do. We spend our money and our time and our lives mostly on things that don't make any difference. If you're honest with it, the things that we worry about, we do that. We allow ourselves to be controlled by things until we're absolutely addicted. Our culture is desperate to take life seriously. But instead of taking the right thing seriously, we become way too addicted to the other things. We're addicted to the current thing, and then the next current thing, and then the next issue, and then the next issue, and all of a sudden, we care about so many issues that we're exhausted. We, we, we believe in whatever the media tells us to care about. Care about. Whatever the politicians or our friend groups or uh, what social media tells us to care about. Some of these things are good things and great things. Yet some of them are mere distractions from what we should be doing. We become distracted. We become tired. We become discouraged. Trying to keep up with everything that we're told to keep up with. Meanwhile, while we're distracted, our enemy roams around like a prowling lion looking for something who he may devour. We're so distracted looking at this issue that we forget about our families. We're so distracted looking over here that we forget about children. We're so distracted looking at whatever else is in front of us that we miss what's the important thing. And like a lion, he's stalking and prowling and waiting for the perfect time to attack. Sometimes being of sober mind actually means uh, realizing that there is evil around us. There is a societal evil that's around our, in our society and culture. There is a personal evil. And whether you believe it or not, I'll tell you there is a devil. There is Satan whose sole desire is to sabotage your life, your relationships, and your families. I believe as you look at the Bible seriously and you take Scripture seriously, you should realize that this is a true statement. There is evil around us. We do not live in a neutral world. We live in a world that has a moral right and a moral wrong. Instead, what we've been told is we live in a world that has a moral, eh, maybe. No, there is a right, there is a wrong, there is a truth, and there is an untruth. We live in a world where there is temptation everywhere. We live in a world where there is an enemy of our souls seeking to devour you, and that should scare us all a little bit. It should wake you up. 
get serious about this. The devil is roaring like a lion for whom he may devour. And that word devour means to swallow you whole. Think of an alligator eating a fish. They don't bother chewing. They swallow you. What Peter's trying to tell you is this. Wake up. Check your blind side. Know your enemy. Because if you're not careful, you'll be swallowed whole. Don't ignore the possibility of attack. Humility means realizing you are not invincible. Humility means being serious about your weakness. Be serious about what you've gone through. I like to watch those nature shows uh, that follow the animals around. I think they're uh, terribly entertaining, and, and I have to explain to my kids why while I'm watching a lion eat a gazelle, and they, they don't like this. Well, like, it's the circle of life, kids. This is what happens. They don't understand it yet. But one of them highlighted how these lions uh, circle their prey, often for a couple days, and they watch, and they examine, and they study. They're prowling, right? They're looking for something. They're not looking for who's the strongest one. They're not going to bug the strongest person or the strongest gazelle in the group of gazelles, whatever they're called, the herd. They're not going to go after the strongest one. They're not going to go after the, the, the fastest one. Instead, they're going to wait until they can see the weakest one. Where's the weak link? And as soon as they find it, that's when the music changes. And now the hunt is on and the lions are running everywhere and the gazelles are trying to get out of the way. And then they fi- they've circled their way around the, the weakest one and that's where they jump on and attack. They stalk, they roam, they take note of who they're going to strike. Satan does the same thing. He's watching you. You don't think you have any weaknesses. He's got maybe four of them. I can attack you here. I can attack you there. I know where you're weak. Do you know where you're weak? Do you know where your vulnerabilities are? We don't like to do that. Instead, what do we do? Someone asks you in a job interview, what are your weaknesses? Oh, I work too hard, right? No, 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 no. What are your weaknesses? Have you come to grips with where you're weak? I have a history with looking at things I shouldn't look at on the internet. I know that's my weakness. So how do I shore myself up to that? I have a list of things that I have made sure that that's where Satan's going to get me. Here are some buffer zones to make sure he doesn't come after me in that way. You might have a weakness with pride, thinking yourself is untouchable. Well, that's probably your weakness. Where is Satan going to attack you? If it's money, if it's worry, if it's relationships, Satan, Satan focuses not on where you're strong, but where you're weak. Humility understands that you have those weaknesses and that you will be tempted. The, this weakness will most likely also be the area of your biggest suffering. Suffering in our lives is when our temptation, uh, when the temptation to sin confronts our desire for righteous living. So you know what you should do. You're tempted to do the other. That's where suffering is because then you're split open, you're torn between what is right to the point of weakness. This is where you will be attacked. Shore it up. When the military makes bases, they go around and say, this is their weak point. This is probably where they're going to get us. So what do they do? They move men, they move infantry, they move everything to that spot so they don't give in in that area. We desire to be fit to fit in with people. And so our temptation is to give up on beliefs or how Scripture instructs us to live and replace them with whatever, what, we, what everyone else thinks is right. 
you might be lonely. It's okay. Three out of five Americans are. So your temptation in that time is filling that loneliness with random hookups, alcohol, drugs, pornography, overwork, overcommitment. That's a weakness because it's distracting you of what you should be doing. We are tempted to get angry. We're tempted to doubt, tempted to envy, tempted to question beliefs, tempted to be proud and make the world about us. And Peter's saying, look, stand firm in those. That's your weakness. Stand firm in it. But then he does something else. He, opposed, he exposes something about the way the lions will attack. The commonly used lie that Satan employs uh, makes you believe that you are alone in your suffering. Somehow everybody else has this life easy. But what does he say at the end of this verse? Everyone around us is going through the same thing. He says, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same type of suffering. You're not alone in temptation. You're not alone in your doubt. You're not alone in your loneliness. Stand firm in the faith because you're not by yourself in this. And that's the way that Satan wants you to make. Think of yourself. 